0: As people know, Jeff Bezos, Amazon guy, he's worth a decent amount of money. I believe $108.7 billion. To put this in context, that equates to you making over $147,000
1: per day, every day since the birth of Christ. And you did this calculation on Wolfram Alpha. I jumped out there and I did one. What Mark Zuckerberg's net worth is divided by the cost of a U.S. postage stamp. Mark Zuckerberg is worth 135 and a half billion U.S. postage stamps. So I have another one here too: Warren Buffett's net worth divided by Jimmy Buffett's net worth. I've always wondered how they compare. So apparently, Warren Buffett is worth 135 Jimmy Buffett's.: It's a lot of sons of a sailor.
0: Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physicians' practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint, episode number 189. I am Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer. Hey, Reed, how's it going today? I feel like we're out of the summer, uh, you know, that we're in September. Like it
1: feels like, are we in fall? Astrologically, we are not in fall yet, but it still feels like fall, doesn't it? It, it does, only because football has now started,
0: kind of. Last night, the Patriots played. And everybody loves uh, Bill Belichick. Of course, they had no fans in in the stands. And uh, they asked him after the game, is there anything he can compare it to? And just like, you know, super deadpan. He was like, practice?
1: (laughs) I guess that's like us every week, right? (laughs) We must be practicing every week.
0: Yeah, we have no fans in the stands here. No, No live fans. But thank you, those that are listening. We appreciate your support. Thanks for rating, reviewing, subscribing. If you haven't, That is still one of the best ways that uh, other folks can find us is by giving us one of those uh, ratings there on said platform. And uh, we really appreciate that, whether it's over on Apple Podcasts, streaming on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, whatever it may be. So we certainly appreciate it. Also want to point out the website touchpoint.health. If you'd like to learn more about this show, or maybe maybe it's a link we mention in this show, maybe it's other shows on our network. The newest one being Healthcare Insight for Marketers by our friends over at True North. So if you haven't checked that out, you can do so at touchpoint.health. Episode two had just come out and Matthew Sweezy is the guest there uh, from Salesforce. We've had him on the show before. I would recommend uh, going and checking out that episode. Also, while you're there, sign up for the TPS report, our weekly email, a little bit of aggregated news from around the industry, as well as some relevant links to conferences, latest episodes, all that kind of fun stuff. So we'll take a pause here. Be right back with today's show.
1: and build a reputation that performs for you.
0: Chris, we're going to Take a little bit of a different slant today, uh, topic-wise, I guess, uh, over some different things that we've talked about historically. So it's not super transactional. It's not like media buying or social media or things like that. But specifically, I would kind of correlate this a little bit to an episode that Dr. Vardabedian did on the exam room sometime back around physician burnout. This idea of mental health and what does that mean, especially now
1: during, are we still in the COVID-19 pandemic, is, are we still part of it? I heard a, a leading person in the in the digital health field say that even if we get a vaccine in the next couple of months, it's still going to be at least nine months before we actually find ourselves getting back to normal, post-pandemic back to normal. So I would say that we're right in the middle. We just hit the six-month mark of when it was declared as a, a national emergency here in the United States. You know, a lot of people have been saying, Reed, that this health pandemic is going to lead to a second pandemic, which is around mental health. We just saw this for those that follow sports. We just saw Dak
0: Prescott, the quarterback for the Cowboys, come out and talk about his mental health over this time. Uh, now, some of this was due to the loss. Uh, he, he lost his brother, but he was talking about the isolation and the distancing and different things like that, creating some anxiety and depression and you know, and those types of things. And so here's here's a guy that's got all the money in the world, the notoriety, the fame, etc. And so I think it just goes to prove that it doesn't really matter who you are, what type of role that you're in, or if you're really important within your organization or not or new or in your career, etc. Mental health is something that uh, impacts everything everybody in different ways. First article we're going to jump into is uh, from medicalexpress.com. Effective digital mental health more necessary than
1: ever during the COVID-19 pandemic. It starts off by reiterating that the fact that the pandemic on a worldwide level has caused a lot of challenges uh, in physical distancing, even socioeconomic consequences of quarantining measures, and the overall loss of social support. These are grave threats, as the article points out, to the public mental health crisis that's looming. And they highlighted a study that was published by the research groups of Center for Urban Mental Health and the University of Amsterdam that shows that digital psychological interventions can diminish the symptoms of mental health disorders, which include depression and substance abuse throughout lower and middle income countries.
0: One of the quotes in here, our study can help to further encourage digital psychological help for those experiencing these uh, mental health problems during and after the, the COVID pandemic. Digital mental health is widely applied In the care settings in Western countries, but nearly 80% of the worldwide population lives in low and middle income countries where they face a very drastic shortage of mental health professionals. So I know know, we're in the Western portion uh, that they're referencing here. But parts of the country that are, that are rural and don't have certain access, we talk about the access to broadband, for example, and we talked on this show as well as other ones on the network about the social determinants of health, the ability to be able to connect and have these types
1: of resources in these areas is really kind of what we're drawing the comparison to. And the researchers have been able to demonstrate This potential around digital mental health care for these various different populations. They say here in this article that digital psychological interventions diminish the symptoms of mental health disorders, which include depression and addiction, and internet interventions as delivered by, for instance, a website or a smartphone app, have robust effects on treating mental health conditions for various different populations in the United States, but also low and middle income countries around the world.
0: In addition, they say to, to growing internet coverage and expansion of smartphone use, more people are suffering from mental health problems can be reached. We're starting to see you know, the ability to actually get into some of these areas, specifically through the smartphones. Uh, in particular, young people, you know, they're on their digital devices quite frequently. I know
1: this because I have them here in my house. And so it makes it easier to be reached. Let's dive into a little bit about the current state of digital healthcare technologies and mental health care. And we referenced an article that's published on psychiatryadvisor.com just recently, where they talk about a survey that was done last year, but they're applying it to today's state. So anything done last year, doesn't seem to apply to what we're at now because of the global pandemic. But in this 2019 survey, they said it was distributed throughout the United States. So let's dig into a little bit, some of the stats that they found.
0: And they're talking about the, you know, the digital health technologies and to kind of set the stage, they are talking about certainly mobile health wearables are part of this telemedicine, et cetera. So you can see how it kind of relates to the last several months. Specifically, they've been incorporated, they say into some aspect of patient care, but that they haven't been fully integrated into like clinical management or the intervention side. The first thing that they point out, 143 clinicians responded to this. So this is everybody from psychiatrists to some advanced practitioners like NPs
1: and pharmacists, residents, students, et cetera. And these respondents, what they said is they were using these digital health technologies in a variety of different ways. Electronic health records, 85% of them said that that's how they were using them. 47% said they were using telemedicine. Digital assessments, interventions, this includes like health risk assessments, a quarter of them. Other various health applications, another quarter of them were using these. Even decision support systems. And even, by the way, AI made its way into this Uh-oh. by 1% of all of the people that were surveyed say they were using AI as part of digital health technology.
0: So some of the hurdles or challenges that exist, it's it's the same that we see across the board, quite honestly. There's a, a big portion of this that has to do with clinical workflow, um, as you would imagine. And then the other big piece of it, which makes total sense, is uh, patient comfort or their ability or knowledge you know, around this type of technology to really make it impactful or useful.
1: They went even further, too, to outline some of the additional barriers that these people surveyed indicated. Security. We talked about this, right? Difficults with security and, and making sure that this is a secure interaction between them and the patients. 34% of them. Infrastructure. And we can also put in there probably interoperability as 28%. But what's interesting too is they actually outlined usability as a big barrier. Over a quarter of them said usability is an issue. And then lastly, technical knowledge. And I would assume that technical knowledge, that's kind of broad way to state that. I'm wondering if that means uh, on they themselves using it, like they didn't have the knowledge or their patients having inability to use these tools. But that came in at 21% as well.
0: Watch this. This is interesting. This is an interesting piece here. So they talk about the aspects to be improved using digital mental health. Okay. So we've got quality of care or maybe out clinical outcomes, they say. Patient access makes sense. Efficiency, personalized medicine, and cost reduction. That sounds good. Yeah. So on the flip side, the least likely to be improved by using digital health cost. Wait a minute. Efficiency, personalized medicine. Wait. Quality of care or outcomes, and patient access. Huh. Wait, that not just the same list in like reverse order or something?
1: Yeah. So wait, the respondents to the survey said that the same things that improve the use of digital mental health can also least likely improve digital health. Is that what this is coming to? I think so. I'm not
0: the smartest in the world, but those look like the same words. It seems like they're exactly the same. That's really interesting, huh? And finally, they they talk about, you know, where do you learn about these solutions? So colleagues at work, kind of word of mouth, if you will. Internet search, uh, another big piece. Websites, I don't know exactly what that means. It seems like that would be on the heels of an internet search. But anyway, digital or print publications, and then finally social media. And so again... I kind of tie the colleagues at work and the social media piece together. You know, that's kind of your word of mouth bucket. The search and websites kind of go together, I guess. The the short of it is, is like, you know, there's a a big chunk of people out there looking for it. And there's a big chunk out there talking about it and ultimately
1: kind of bringing people into this scenario. Really interesting. It's clear from this survey and from what we've been talking about that the need for digital mental health, particularly in this post-COVID times, well, or mid-COVID times, depending on how you're calculating it, is important. So why don't we do this? After the break read, let's come back and let's talk about an article that was published on the National Institute of Health website that is focusing and specifically on how to use this technology to accelerate the curve of access and quality for what's going to happen here in the post-COVID world. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front-row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media.
0: Let's dive in now to our our next article from the National Institute of Health. It's titled Digital Mental Health and COVID-19 Using Technology Today to Accelerate the Curve
1: on Access and Quality Tomorrow. It's a really long title. (laughs) Well, one of the first things this article highlights is that the COVID-19 crisis has highlighted the role of telehealth in the application of care. I even call it This is the golden age of telehealth. Telehealth has been around for a number of years, but now because of COVID, it's accelerated the adoption, use, interest, enthusiasm, and acceptance of telehealth. We've ramped this up quite a bit. It's the golden age. Um, Where do we go from here? Well, where we go from here is what this whole episode is about today, which is mental health. Because they realize too, that on the heels of the public health crisis, that there's going to be a mental health spike. And that's related to a variety of different reasons, and w- which we'll dive into. We need to be prepared to support not only the mental health spike that's going to come on the heels of this crisis, but also any kind of future crises that could be a result of other things that could occur. We need to be prepared to look at mental health in a digital
0: way. So the first thing they talk about is the fact that telehealth is the right solution to deliver mental health, especially in today's environment that we're in, right? We go back to the temporary waiving of rules and regulations. (laughs) So that was pretty unprecedented. So this was back, uh, they say, March the 17th, which sounds about right to me. That would have been a Tuesday, if anybody's counting. It was because the 16th was the beginning of spring break, but in any case, (laughs) so we had the, you know, with the government, the U.S. government waiving a lot of the regulations, which allowed a lot of Gerard's clients to start doing telemedicine in a way that, you know, maybe there was uh, some barriers programmatically and from a policy standpoint leading up to that. Yeah. So we had people going from zero telemedicine visits in a given month to like twenty thousand because they could use Microsoft Teams or Zoom or, or whatever, right? It was easy to stand up and run with. Uh, they talk about in here that it was, you know, made possible because of the strong and clear evidence for the need of telehealth. And there was, there was, you know, decades of, you know,
1: high quality research, they say. Using those lessons from what happened in the telehealth world, and I don't want to, I mean, it's kind of weird, right? We're not separating physical care from mental health care. There's not been a lot of research around mental health, digital health solutions or mental digital health solutions. So this article actually kind of puts these two things together and says, look, there are ways that we can actually apply all of the efficiencies around telehealth to digital mental health solutions. So one of the first things they say here is that digital therapy programs have a role, particularly around this uniqueness of the potential for scalability around digital health. But they caveat that right away by saying we have to be cautious in ensuring that, A, encouraging people to use this and also B, maintaining meaningful engagement are in place because once you start to roll out digital mental health solutions, you want to ensure that your patients see this as a valid way to deliver mental health solutions. Secondly, they say, too, that it's not only with the patients adopting it, but you also have to make sure that the people that are delivering the care through behavioral health and clinical application or even the therapists are using this in a way. Because if you're not, this lack of attention could lead to a lower uptake and support by patients and staff.
0: They're talking here about apps uh, specifically having an important role. A lot of this is around access, right? So the availability or people being able to get to these apps, and certainly that directly leads to how well they can scale. So using apps in conjunction, they say, with current care has been shown to increase the efficacy of app interventions, It's not one or the other. It's kind of both and. They talk about sensor survey and digital phenotyping data can be used to make more informed data-driven and evidence-based decisions about care.
1: The sensor part's interesting. Think about the advancement of the technology around that, being able to to phenotype and even get that sensory input and survey input. Moreover, they say that uh, bringing app data into telehealth visits can offer a a practical means for patients to share data of their lived experience, which is a very important piece of this when you think about mental health and behavioral health interventions. So we're talking about things like changing your exercise, uh, increased stress levels in response to not only the environment being different, but also to potentially new medications. All of these things combined together can be customized for each patient to uniquely fit their personal care goals and needs. I have seen now over the last couple of months, maybe I've been hypersensitive to this, but there's been more of an increase in behavioral health and uh, digital mental health apps that are out there now, even freely on the marketplace. Have you seen that too? There's no shortage, that's
0: for sure, of apps. I don't, you know, as a side, it's hard for me to tell what they do. From an adoption standpoint, like why would I use this one versus that one or something like
1: that? Well, and I also think that there's an opportunity here for health systems to start curating these apps as like being things that you can use. And I know Kaiser is been very well known for doing this over the years. They even highlight that here, right? Relying on static lists of top apps and other scoring systems for selecting these behavioral health apps can often be unhelpful. But they highlight that the American Psychiatric Association has an app evaluation framework that is practical and ready to use. And so they even sort of say that this is something that you should look at. When we talk about the impacts of mental health in a post-COVID world, a lot of people are turning to resources even outside of the care setting.
0: Yeah. And their next point here, I, I'd love your thoughts here as well, but is it, they're talking about one underdeveloped area of the digital mental health apps uh, ecosystem uh, is the remote delivery of lo- what they call lifestyle uh, interventions, so physical exercise, sleep, healthy diet, etc. I thought that's all these were just about. I mean, I'm sure there's like I see those everywhere, but that's
1: underdeveloped. Well, I think it's underdeveloped in the treatment of mental health or behavioral health. If you think about like where the world is now, where we have social distancing, self-quarantining, there are all of these things that are going to be playing into a person's mental health. Sure. In this particular case, underdeveloped means in the formal application of these in a digital mental health solution. Versus just it's an app that you download. Right. I mean, we're using them, but applying this all con- contextually within a, a behavioral health intervention, I think, becomes very important. Yeah. And they say, too, that in times of economic recession, it actually can drive to a higher prevalence of mental health disorders. And later on in the episode, the interview with Alexander Drain, we get into this specifically, but, you know, substance abuse suicide. The need for more mental health services are going to tax an already an overburdened healthcare system that frankly doesn't prioritize mental health always. They say that this is kind of a critical need here.
0: This goes back, well, there's a few things here and you're talking about it being a critical need. They're talking here about teaching psychiatry residents about mobile mental health should leverage examples of teaching telehealth. Well, that makes sense, but I, you know, I've never been to medical school. For example, I I don't know what they teach and don't teach about telehealth specifically, right? They also talk about in here about you know patients and the relevance uh, around digital literacy. How do we know the people on the receiving end of this understand what's going on?
1: One of the the most underscored challenges here that the public health crisis has really brought out in all of this is that digital literacy and competency certainly has a significant and profound impact when we talk about equity and social justice. There are vast, wide areas of our U.S. population that are being impacted unjustly by this public health crisis. And by the way, they're also going to be impacted significantly by a mental health crisis. And these disparities that are related to low-income and people receiving public health benefits have a significant impact in the way we're, we actually have to start to structure digital behavioral health and mental health solutions.
0: They, they make an interesting point in here. Well, they make a number of interesting points, but one about the time in which we're in, right? The self-quarantining, stay-at-home, et cetera. If you're housing, if, if, where, if, if that's not a stable scenario, so, I mean, homeless... Is one extreme of that. But even just uh, you know, not having uh, predictable housing, the idea of charging a phone or a laptop, et cetera, how do you find hot spots? It it makes for an interesting, you know, kind of back to the social determinants of health, as we've talked about the ability to reach people through broadband access. Well, you can't do that in some of these underserved populations. Uh, in rural areas and some things like that. Well, that's where some of this starts to play in.
1: And it also plays into how we physically deliver mental health too. And they even highlight here, right? We need to prepare the workforce to conduct street psychiatry and outreach work, to carry chargers and portable hotspots and all of these things that you talked about, right? These are things that are going to be significant in order for us to connect with peers and, and outreach workers as well. So there is this sort of bubbling secondary pandemic that's occurring. And this came all the way back to the top of the show when we were referring to Dr. Brian Vargabidian referring to this as impacting the, the healthcare workplace. Well, this is going to impact everybody if we think about that. And let's not lose the fact too, that we have to ensure that the digital data that's collected for mental health purposes is not, also repurposed and used for surveillance or for advertising or in all that other stuff. Too, oh,
0: it'll right? definitely be advertising.
1: That's really unfortunate. So, But with that, why don't we go to the interview that I just recently did. I actually did this during the recent Healthcare Marketing and Physician Strategy virtual conference just a couple of weeks ago. I actually sat down with Alexander Drain, who's CEO and co-founder of Rebel Health and Archangels. And we discussed a recent CDC survey that kind of sheds light on the mental health crisis linked to the coronavirus pandemic. It was a fascinating conversation. So give it a listen, and then we'll be back to wrap up the show. Well, welcome, everyone. I'm excited today to have a conversation with Alexander Drain, which I'll uh, introduce in just a moment. We are going to be talking about a topic that's a big concern of huge proportions to our industry. And there was a report that just came out, a survey from the CDC just last week about this. And so we felt it was very important for us to have a conversation about it. And we're adding it to our agenda for the uh, Healthcare Marketing Physician Strategy Summit this year. Without further ado, I want to jump in and introduce Alexander Drain, who is co-founder and CEO of Rebel Health and Archangels. She serves as a wellness expert for a lot of big companies, including Prudential. Um, and she co founded Eliza Corporation, Engage with Grace, and three other bootstrapped companies. Uh, you could tell she's a serial entrepreneur. She is also a cashier on leave for Walmart. An interesting fact about you, Alexandra. Appreciate that. But you really believe in retail as being the front line of health and that caregivers are our country's greatest asset. And that we need to expand sort of the definition of health to include all of those aspects that are not within the healthcare setting. And I'm excited to talk to you today, Alex. So um, uh, welcome.
2: Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. And I just wanna say a huge shout out to Judy and the team and to you. Um, I am a last minute addition and I think that you guys finding a space for this topic because this just broke literally a couple of days ago shows mm-hmm. your flexibility um, at a time when the whole country could could use that and is, is suffering for the lack of it. So thank you, thank you, thank you for having me be on. I'm very honored and grateful.
1: Well, that's great. I'm excited to, well, excited might not be the right word, but I'm, this is a very intriguing topic. So the, the survey that we're referring to was actually published by the CDC. It's uh, the Mental Health, Substance Abuse, and substance abuse, and suicidal ideation during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, A very weighty topic, an important topic. And I've often heard others, healthcare professionals, refer to the mental health issues that are being caused by this pandemic as being almost the second pandemic that is right on the heels of the first. So interested in your thoughts on that positioning.
2: Yeah. No, I've heard that term positioning as well. And I agree with that 100%. And I think anyone who's lived through it knows that, right? If you're what maybe started out in the beginning as something we felt was gonna have a beginning and a middle and an end, and even though it was terrifying, we had some semblance of this is what you should do. And as time has worn on, so too has our sense of when will it end and what does it mean? And I think you see absolutely increasing levels of despair, anxiety, loneliness, isolation, depression associated with that
1: yeah absolutely. The survey found uh, we 'll we'll be di- diving into a couple of stats, but one of the the most interesting stats is that forty point nine percent of the respondents of this survey reported that they had at least one mental health or behavioral health condition um, that doesn 't surprise me having lived through this myself over the last you know five six months or Five six years. Who knows what time is like anymore? It you know, and even being in a place where I have the ability to you know have a roof over my head and and engage with people, I still myself have found uh, um, mental uh, mental conditions or or you know concerns a little bit of depression, anxiety. Um, Tell us a little bit about about that finding.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's fascinating to to recognize that income, in fact, is not really protective. Yeah. On this mental health impact of, of COVID and, and sort of the despair and anxiety it's creating across the country. Um, I think the first thing I would say is I want to build on and really reinforce what you just said, because we have to treat ourselves first. You know, back in the days when we used to fly on airplanes, they would say, please put your own air mask on before putting the mask on someone else. And I think anyone who's listening, anyone who's paying attention to this topic, check yourself. Like, are you okay? and recognize that this is very, very real stress. And anyone who's listening to this right now, we're all supposed to be experts in it. And yet we're drowning and we're having a hard time. And if that's true for us, can you imagine what this is like for an hourly worker, for a gig worker, for somebody who's an essential worker who's being called into potentially harm's way on a daily basis, Maybe on the front line delivering care, but maybe actually, you know, as a cashier at Walmart, not making that same kind of money, not having that same access to resources. So for each of us, be aware of how devastating this is across the board and then let that build up in our bellies a great hunger and and drive to go be sure we're caring for those who have um, even less access.
1: Right. I often heard it said, right, we're in this together. We all are kind of facing the same pandemic, but um, I've, I've heard it shift a little bit where people say we're not in the same, we're maybe in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat.
2: Right. Together we're all in different boats. I love that. I think that's a wonderful way, wonderful visual we all need to have. Yeah.
1: Right, and so what's interesting about the study, and um, is that they actually looked into some subgroups, and there were some interesting findings uh, that they had. So let's drill into some of those. So first of all, they said, um, uh, this surprised me. Uh, people between the ages of eighteen and twenty four, seventy five percent of them, um, actually were had some very significant mental behavioral impacts because of this.
2: Yeah. So. Yeah, you know, I think if you've been around someone who's 18 to 24, this is the time in your life when you're, you've been looking forward to it, you're ready to spread your wings and go, you're about to get your first job, you're about to start having successes, you're falling in love, maybe you're thinking about you know combining households, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. and all of those dreams are put on hold. And I'll tell you a funny story, we do a lot of work with the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving, and Rosalind Carter, I think, just had her 93rd birthday yesterday, actually, and one I asked her through her executive director, Rosen, what, Miss President, Mrs. Carter, please tell me, um, you know, what have you learned being alive for so long about how we can manage through real challenges and real traumas? You've been through, you know, war, you've been through um, massive shifts in our country. What, what can we learn from you? Help. And she said, I actually, I, I I don't have anything to add because I've never seen anything like this. Now remember, she's 93. Now remember what we were like, I'm 49, when we were 18 to 24. You don't have that resiliency of having things gone go wrong over time and learning that you'll be okay if you just stay the course. Bad, bad things can happen, but you will recover. That doesn't exist in our bodies when we're younger. And so I think when you look at the level of anxiety and depression and post-traumatic, you know, real stress disorder, part of it is we don't have yet the belief that we can survive. Um, And part of it is just plain old loneliness and isolation because a lot of these kids, these younger folk are, are sometimes living alone, are literally isolated.
1: Right, absolutely. And, you know, we've seen with them returning back to colleges, and we're almost casting judgments on them when we see them g- gathering together. And, and in part, I'm thinking this is a societal response. They they miss each other, they crave that social interaction. So, right? Yeah.
2: No, oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, there is something so fundamental about touch and mm-hmm. presence and being near each other and being able to you know, read nuances and just feel the warmth of being next to someone else. There is a reason we are tribal. There is a reason that years and years again, we sat around the same campfire. Right. Um, and we don't have that anymore. And I would also say the other thing essentially about these 18 to 24 year olds is many of them with this economic uncertainty that's being thrust upon them. They're also feeling responsible. One in four millennials were caregivers before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We can only imagine how that's been exacerbated now. And so they're not only worried about their own situation, they're feeling responsible for others. And some of that, they're being asked to, to step up and take in roles that they might not otherwise have been equipped to do. So I think it's you see it on both sides.
1: Right. Well, let's let's shift a little bit to the group of, of those caregivers, right? Because I think that that's also an incredible statistic. 67% of those surveyed have indicated as well that they're struggling, and these are unpaid caregivers of adults. So talk a little bit about that.
2: So, you know, when people think about a caregiver, when they've thought about caregivers historically, um, they've often put that in the paid caregiver class. So the the beautiful thing about the this CDC report, and this is the part that Archangels was very, very lucky to be able to contribute to this unbelievable research team. If you want a team of folks who are off the chart smart, um, read this, you know, Mark Sizer, Chuck Sizer, Mark, you know, Shanta. These are incredible, incredible humans doing really amazing work. Most of society has talked about caregivers often as the paid caregiver. And that is what we discussed before it's the front line it's the doctors it's nurses but it's also the postal workers it's also the folks who are you know filling the inventory at a walmart sure. those are all classified as paid caregivers what our contribution to this study and i think what is shocking about the findings it's not shocking if you've been in the space forever because you know it's true and it's not shocking once you start to realize and see yourself as a caregiver It's these unpaid caregivers who have been invisible for so long before COVID, we estimated that they were about anywhere, depending on what study, 45 to 53 million unpaid caregivers across the U.S. If you look at the data that um, we're finding, for example, on Archangel's side, we're now seeing it's about 61% of the U.S. will self-identify. 55% of that population says that they're new to the role. And wow. so I think when you, they're new to the role, this is not something they've been doing before. And so I think when you look at that 67% who are reporting a mental health impact, that's a lot to take on. And you're either taking it on, it's either something you've been doing historically, you have built up stress associated with it, impact on your body, literally impact on your clinical health. But it's also the stress of, let's just say you're not the person that you're caring for, you can't get to them. It's the worry about how will you get them food, it's the worry about coordinating care. People say about caregivers that they are multitaskers, you have to be a financial expert, you have to be a legal expert, you have to be a care coordinator. There's so many higher caregivers because they're multitaskers. It's an amazing amount of work that's being taken on, but it's taking a toll. And it's especially taking a toll with all of these things have intensified as they have in the past three to six months.
1: That's an incredible finding. And I think that that's really insightful when we think about like the impacts on our society. Um, You know, I myself don't identify as that, yet I find myself taking on those roles, right? And so, you know, that's an interesting uh, perspective.
2: Well, so, and that's what I think is so important. We, you know, we talk a lot about this thing called look, love, lift. Wherever you are, look around you because there are caregivers and they don't look like what you'd expect. Take a minute to love on them and love on them for the love that they're giving and then give them a lift. Mm -hmm. The look component, so on average, most people presume like the average caregiver is a 46-year-old woman caring for her mom. And that is true, and she is. But think of that statistic I just said. Again, and this was pre-COVID. One in four caregivers are millennials. 45% of caregivers are men, hmm. right? And they're even less equipped sometimes to find access to the resources to have support. Or they might have a less tight community of friends who can step in to help when they take on this extra role. So I think what you just pointed out is so important. Please Instead of presuming that the people around you are not caregivers because they haven't raised their hands and said that they were, or they don't look like what you would expect, Mm -hmm. shift to presuming everybody is. I think an easier question to ask right now is who's not a caregiver. Therefore, go into any room, any meeting, any circumstance that you find yourself, and presume that everyone around you is feeling stress and anxiety about the care of a loved one.
1: Yeah, Wow, that's that's really important to to understand. Now, we, now we've been talking about you know um, the younger generation, which again kind of challenges our biases about how people manage through stressful times. And now the unpaid caregivers, there are there's also a series of subgroups that. We have recently been well. We should not recently. We should have been recognizing these groups for a long time. But the the pandemic has highlighted some of the endemic issues with uh, some of these other categories that are kind of at risk. And so, you know, we're talking about now um, the the black population, the Latinx population, for example, and even some of those that are socioeconomically disadvantaged. You know, on the often characterized as an essential worker, uh, for many cases, in the front lines. So let's talk a little bit about those, those characteristics and, and what the study has found.
2: Yeah, you know, one of the things, and I'll, I'll pull up the study also so I can be looking at this and, and actually quoting exact statistics for you and with you, um, you know, as a, I'll just share, as a, I was a cashier at Walmart for 18 months, and one of the things, I fell madly in love with my coworkers and one of the things that you saw play out in a population that was more diverse was the percentage of you know individuals who were living in multi-generational households mm-hmm. and who were swapping jobs to be able to cover different shifts and because you know a, a grandfather had moved in then mm-hmm. the you know a younger person might be caring for the older generation while the essential workers going out the one who can make the most money is going out to actually work and you see obviously these dynamics play out even more in some populations which have more, um, who have less access to resources. So specifically, I think some of the statistics um, was when you're looking at, and this is, let's take a moment actually to, I think statistics is a beautiful quote. Statistics are human with the tears wiped away. I think sometimes we throw away this, like we throw out, you know, 30% of people felt this or or only 30% of people felt this because it's not 60, but that's still 30%. Let's talk about the percentage of these respondents who reported having seriously considered suicide in the 30 days prior to the survey. Self-reported unpaid caregivers for adults, that was 31%. Wow. So close to one in three caregivers in the last 30 days before answering this question had thought about taking their own lives from the stress. Mm -hmm. If you're age 18 to 24, that was 26%. If you're an essential worker, it's 22. If you're an Hispanic, it was 19%. If you're black, it's 15%. Notice those are massive, massive, massive numbers, right? And so the implications for these populations and what we're just beginning to look at for the next set of studies that will hopefully come out on this topic. Okay, let's overlay. What if you're a black caregiver, right? Who's an essential worker and is it an unpaid caregiver? And you begin to see the compounding effect of these stresses on these populations that are experiencing these disparities and therefore having a disproportionately negative impact from COVID.
1: It's amazing how much this pandemic has highlighted some of the, the systemic challenges we have as a, as a healthcare industry, but even as our, our approach to public health. Is that, what are your thoughts?
2: Oh, too. I, I have to tell you a funny story. So there was a, um, I, there's a gentleman by the name of Reverend Tyrone Pitts and I sit on the board of CTAC and we coalition to transform advanced care. A lot of this comes under how do we transform living our very best days until our last. Big issue for caregivers, obviously, since they're responsible for that. And the Reverend was talking about this triple pandemic, that we've got a pandemic of COVID and we've got racism and we've got poverty. So I called my friend Carla Denise Edwards, who's an executive now at Henry Ford Health Systems before she'd been at Providence. And I said, Carla Denise, this is amazing. It's this triple pandemic. And she said, let me stop you there. This is not a triple pandemic. COVID is a pandemic. Racism and poverty are endemic. These are issues that have been around that are foundational that we now have to start addressing. What's happening is COVID has exposed them. And when we start trying to find bright spots to all this, right, a bright spot is we are now seeing the extent to which this is happening. And if you look at topics that that um, are grabbing the attention of the media, grabbing the attention of politicians. Mm-hmm. It is increasingly these issues, specifically, for example, for caregivers.
1: Yeah, you know, um, I call, uh, a friend of mine, Brian Castrucci, who leads the De Beaumont Foundation, he actually has, uh, said this. He says, you know, well, coronavirus is new, and it's, and we're still learning how to solve the, these problems. But economic disparities racial and disparities those are not new and and we should be focusing on those yes. so what are your thoughts about how we can start to pivot what can we do with this this data what what's our calling
2: so we one of the we archangels we didn't figure this out until later in the middle of the word archangels is change right mm-hmm. the word change is right in there, and I love that And we talk a lot about How do we change the conversation so that we can change culture, so that we can change lives? And I'll use caregiving as an example, but anything because it's been stigmatized and the only way to destigmatize something is to normalize it by changing the conversation and changing culture. But that's true with any of the other populations that we just discussed. And one of the most important ways to normalize something is we have to start talking about it. And anybody who's part of your, your meeting, this summit that you guys are having, they are a leader in some way. They're a leader within their organization. They're a leader within their community. They're a leader with their friends. They might be a leader within their, um, you know, YMCA, whatever it might be. And one of the best ways to normalize and is for leaders to stand up and tell their own story. Because when, when somebody that you respect talks openly about something that's hard, like I've been suffering a lot of anxiety as a caregiver and this is what it looks like and this is how it feels, it gives someone else permission to share their own story. It lets somebody see themselves reflected in the reality of someone that they might have thought everything was awesome for and actually it's not. And then the biggest gift all of us can give each other right now is you're not alone, Mm -hmm. right? And then once you cross that together and you can start having these conversations, caregivers, as an example, have become experts in caregiving. They've Mm -hmm. solved a lot of these problems. So if you're a caregiver who's experienced, one of the most important things we can do is crosswalk you over to talk to a caregiver who's brand new. Nowhere are we seeing that disparity more, that opportunity more than with caregivers in COVID. Mm -hmm. Think about the 45% who've been caregivers historically versus the 55% who are new. So one of the things that we can do, start having this conversation, normalize it, share your own story, share your own story with your employees, share your own stories with your populations. And then number two, help people connect to the resources, that especially if you're a caregiver, you don't know exist, you don't even self-identify as the caregiver, as you said, right? You would just say, I'm just a son, I'm just a brother, I'm just a friend, I'm just a neighbor. Actually, you're probably a caregiver. And once you allow that to come onto you, then maybe you'll be open to seeing that there are these resources that are available to help, and then we can get you access to them, because there really are a ton of resources in your state, from your employer, from your health plan that exists, that can be practical and tactical in helping you get, get support.
1: I think that's, that's, those are good words, right? Because a lot of this was, it seems very bleak when you think about it, but again, it's about that shared identity. It's about that shared, we're, we're in the society together. And, um, you know, although, you know, at times it feels like we're disparate, we're not, right? And, and sometimes I, I don't like the term socially distanced, right? I, I understand we're physically distanced right now, um, but we're not, we shouldn't be socially distanced, right?
2: Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I actually just, somebody just checked me on that the other day, and I said we're social distancing, and they said, no, we're physically distancing. Language yeah. matters a lot, right? Because it helps your language becomes what culture believes. And so I think we got to be careful. Let's use the word physically distancing. Um, and I also think related to that, that is part of what's driving some of these feelings of loneliness and feeling of isolation and feeling despair. If, if we can refocus, let's try and you guys are a bunch of marketers rebrand, right? right, This around what unites us, because there are many more things that unite us. And the most foundational thing that unites us is the need to love and be loved, to care for others and to be cared for yourself. And I can tell you across every single demographic, and I have made my entire life about working across every demographic, that is foundational. You're going to see the same angst and agita on a beautiful young 18-year-old cashier at Walmart about caring for their loved ones, caring for their customers, caring for their coworkers, and the same confusion and you know lack of clarity on exactly how to do that as you're going to see on an executive of a health plan. That's what's so funny about all this. You know, the other way we're all the same is even if you're super privileged, you and I are super privileged, that doesn't mean we're not lost, right? So, again, that's a beautiful, as we share our vulnerability, we give other people permission to feel less alone. And that, in and of itself, is the first line of care.
1: Right. Oh, yes. And it, is a, it isn't something that we're going to fix overnight, too, right? We're we so much as a society thinking we're, we're a band aid generation. We want to just put a band aid on it and move on. This is a long term change that we need to follow.
2: Well, and maybe that is another bright spot. You know, I'm a bootstrapper, so I've never raised venture capital, and I get so frustrated when I hear the, like, up into the right, we're going to hockey stick. Like, actually, what if we just take time to build something of value? Everything doesn't happen overnight. And learning how to cope with COVID isn't going to happen overnight. But that, in and of itself, will be a bright spot, because that is what is the foundation of resiliency. And these 18 to 24-year-olds who are having the hardest time right now, they're going to be magnificent humans as time goes on because they're going to survive. And when they do, they will have the patina of things not always working, right? And they're going to have learned how to problem solve. They're going to have turned to each other. And may we, as folks who are older, right? I'm, I'm an elder now. Like, it's my job to reach out to that population and say, you're not alone. How can I help? And I think in, in, just in general, back to your question, what can we all be doing? Reach out to someone right now and know that caregivers are never going to ask for help because A, they don't think they need it. B, they don't want to bother you, right? C, they don't think it's going to come anyway. So don't ask someone, how can I help? Freaking help. Just go help. And the way we can help those 18 to 24-year-olds is just insert ourselves into their lives and be of service to them.
1: Alexander, those, those words resonate so well with me, and it's, it's given me hope, I, you know, to, to, and, and inspires me to, we, we're on the right path. This is a, a time for us to, 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 to make something better of what we have, right? This is, and this pandemic has highlighted the opportunities for us to do that. So if people want to know more about the study, um, you know, obviously it's been reported a lot, but um, what, do you have any resources that you would recommend for them to go to?
2: Yeah. um, You know, we've organized a bunch of them on our site. So if you just go to archangels.me, so A-R-C-H-A-N-G-E-L-S dot M-E, you can find everything right there. Just literally click on resources. And one of the things that we focus on a lot is using language that is not overly academic. That is not, you know, I feel stupid often when people talk to me about things they're expert in. I'm like, I have no idea what you just said. Mm -hmm. And of us will say, well, why don't you dumb it down? No, no, no. I would say, why don't you smarten it up? Actually, if you can really, what did Mark Twain say? It would have been shorter if I had more time. If right. you can boil it down to the nuts and bolts, that's what people have time for. That's what will make them feel less alone in reading it. And so we've tried to make the resources that are available on that site be very accessible, um, be something that anybody could read and get get value from. And the other thing that we're working on a lot, we've built something that is actually included in this study, um, the Caregiver Intensity Index. It's not called out. We'll hopefully be doing other papers to look into it. But the Caregiver Intensity Index is something that is just a very short tool, that in the taking of it, actually you see people go from thinking I'm not a caregiver to the self-realization that they are. But all of people's answers, questions like do you feel resentment sometimes to the person you care for? Does your employer have things to help? Um, Do you feel supported by friends or family? Do you as a family have fights over who's doing what? All of your answers are tagged, and those can be crosswalked over to resources that exist. Again, you know, one of the things I'll give as an example, the EAP, right, employees, is that there are a lot of resources that already exist in employers. They're just bundled up in a way people don't know how to access. Unbundle those resources, rename them in real words that actual humans can understand, and get people access to them so they can get help.
1: Wow. Well, that's, that's great. Alexandra, thank you so much for taking some time out to really share some of the important findings of this study. And I, it's, it's an incredible addition to this conference. So I really appreciate your time.
2: I'm so grateful to be a part. I'm really, really great. Thank you for including me.
0: Special thanks to uh, Alexandra for coming on the show. Appreciate the expertise, the insights. This is uh, an interesting topic, certainly. And I can think as time goes, you know, people talk about Zoom fatigue. Is that really what we're talking about? Or are we talking about some level of anxiety or depression or whatever? Anyway, it's just an interesting time in which we're currently living. So appreciate her, her coming on. And uh, that is a topic I'm sure we'll revisit over time. A couple of uh, points uh, around some upcoming conferences as we're recording this. Shishmed's Navigating a New Reality is happening. But uh, shortly after that, in October, is the Shishmed Connections Conference. We've also got HCIC coming up in the fall. You've got the SMASH Conference. All this you can find out more about in uh, our weekly newsletter, the TPS Report, which you can sign up for on our website over at touchpoint.health. So we've got links to all this fun stuff. All right. Well, let's do some um, recommendations. What do, you, what do you have today?
1: So, Reed, I want to ask you, before I get into my recommendation, are you a fan of The Karate Kid? Oh, yeah. The original Ralph Macchio oh, yeah. Karate Kid. There were apparently three movies. I only saw two of them. The one where he went to Japan, and then I, I realized there was a third one that also. It,
0: there's actually more than that, because then you get into the one with Will Smith's kid and
1: stuff like that, which was later on. But, yeah, there were three in that original Kind of run. I'm not sure you knew this, but there was a show that was done just recently mm-hmm. on YouTube Red called Cobra Kai, which actually looked at what happened many years later with the person that was uh, actually the protagonist in the show. His name was Johnny Lawrence. Remember the. Yeah, sweep the leg. Sweep the leg, right. Well, so lately they rebooted the show called Cobra Kai. And Netflix just acquired the rights to it, and I have been watching that show, and I have to tell you, it's kind of fun to watch. It kind of brings back the whole Karate Kid mentality. Have you seen that?
0: No, I've got it queued up, and so I think that's
1: maybe what we're going to watch next, so I'm, I'm excited. Kind of fun, right? A half-hour program dedicated to what happens 34 years later after the 1984 defeat in the All-Valley Karate Tournament. What happens with Johnny Lawrence? Uh, the All-Valley. And also, what happens with the Ralph Machio character, too? I've been watching that. It's kind of fun. It's a little bit of a brain candy, meaning mm-hmm. you know you don't have to really commit to it. It's interesting if you position it as if Johnny Lawrence, maybe he was the hero of the actual series. Oh, itself. boy. Definitely highly recommend it. It's good. It's fun to watch. And uh, I would strongly recommend it. I like that. I like that.
0: So I'm going to recommend something no one's going to buy. Uh, because <laughs> that's what I do. I am recommending a welder. Oh. Oh. Like a person? Not like somebody to do welding, but like the actual device to weld with. Oh, okay, okay. (laughs) I'm gonna recommend a MIG welder. Specifically the one that I have is a Hobart 140 MIG welder. Uh, I recommend that. It plugs into a 110 outlet, which is nice. You can build some small things. I mean, you don't wanna build a bridge with it or anything, but building furniture or small things for outside, you know, et cetera, it's perfect. Point and shoot MIG welder. You can do flux core, you can do the gas if you wanted to really get you know nerdy about it. But yeah, I'm gonna recommend a welder. Everybody should weld. One more
1: reason not to look at a computer. <laughs> I love it, I love it. And it, it seems like you did some welding over the weekend too, I saw.
0: I did, yeah, it's the first time I'd, I'd broken it out since the move from Texas. So it was nice to uh, make a mess and it was great. Very cool. Well, there you have it. A little bit of everything, some useful, some not. Like the welding part. Uh, But we appreciate you uh, spending some time with us today. And thank you so much for doing that. Thanks so much for downloading the episode. Thanks so much for returning. If this is uh, something you listen to on a regular basis, we certainly appreciate that. Touchpoint.health is the website. Rate, review, subscribe, wherever you happen to listen. And most importantly, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, really tell anybody. It would be great. We would certainly appreciate it. And reach out to us on the socials. Uh, We'd love to hear from you and uh, love to connect. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about
2: this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.